Welcome to Reading Around Macro. My name is Emil Kalinowski. Today's reading is of an essay by Jeffrey P. Snyder at Real Clear Markets, which was posted on the 18th of June and is called The Dots Are on the Move, But So Are the Dot Spoilers. Because if you remember, about 10 days ago, the Federal Reserve announced that they moved their tic-tac-toe dots to the left and to the right and down, and it means that they believe that interest rates will be higher sooner than they had previously expected. So they're hawkish, and that means something. It's not clear what, but something. And the business press is um, in palpitations. They look like the Beatles fans of the early 1960s at the front of the stage. Meanwhile, Jeff is saying, hey, why don't we take a look at this overnight reverse repurchase agreement data because it's signaling something troubling. So many dots, so little time. Actually, only a few dots and quite a ton of unearned noise. If we're talking about dots again, then that could only mean doing the same thing and expecting different outcomes. Those blotches are simply what policymakers themselves believe that the future will look like, probabilities and whatnot. Thinking ahead, moving them around here or there, is supposed to convey changes to or from hawkishness. Yet when we only go back a few years to re-witness the futility of the exercise, dots went one way, reality quite the other. And that reality is the Federal Reserve pretending to be a central bank. True monetary consistency goes in other places, a fact established yet again by one other, actually two, unnoticed change undertaken at this week's policy meeting. What specifically happened this week with the rate hike forecasts was by any reasonable standard underwhelming. Didn't matter. Three additional FOMC participants now think the committee might be voting for rate hikes in 2022. Added to the four who thought the same in March, this means there are now seven leaning this way and 11 who still aren't. Looking ahead to the following year, 2023, there had been probably the same 11 foreseeing no rate hikes then either. But now, in June, the number has dwindled to just five. This is, we're told, a high degree of hawkishness. <coughs> Initially, the bond market seemed to agree. Treasury note and bond yields rose sharply on Wednesday due to the dot issue. And then longer-term instruments round-tripped yesterday, leaving the curve only a bit higher in the middle and near unchanged at the long end. This isn't about the rash of recent CPI and PPI figures. On the contrary, even the latest dot plot confirms the Fed's more rational stance on them. Transitory. If those truly represent something meaningful in terms of monetary inflation and economic overheating rather than the obvious symptoms of the supply shocks they are, then a whole lot more dots would have shifted into 2021 instead of a small few into 2022. The hawkishness is characterized by the minor change in rate hike forecasts relates to the official modeled view of evolving perceptions about downside risks. 
Believing the economy plagued mostly by this COVID plague, the FOMC has taken account from the very real, very good progress on the pandemic and assigned it a much lower probability of interrupting the economic rebound, vaccines, reopening, etc. These are the new dots. Officials are discounting reinfection and are right to do so. But are those the only potential downside risks? We've asked this question many times over the last 13 years since August 2007. Those at the Fed say, nah, that's all there is to worry about. Monetary policy has fixed any other lingering issues. All good to go. Still, there is no accountability for all those past times when it turned out not good to go. Inflation and recovery predicted by dots or other communication devices previous to the plots. No dice when the time came. And in each and every case, there remains the same deficiency at its root. Collateral scarcity leaving open the door to something worse developing right when the recovery should. Collateral shortage. Therefore, acute global dollar shortage. Ironically, this week, Jay Powell and his group have done us a favor by inadvertently exposing this same issue. While the media attention focused on those worthless dots and extrapolated them badly onto recent CPIs and whatnot, the mystery so to speak, with the reverse repo program window only deepened, at least from the perspective of the same mainstream unable to discern what goes on outside of bank reserves. The commonplace explanation for RRP, overnight reverse repurchase agreements, treasury securities sold by the Federal Reserve in temporary open market operations. <clears throat> the commonplace explanation for RRP is that it is a last resort for money market participants to place excess reserves, too many reserves, therefore the need to soak them up. From a monetary policy perspective, this gives the central bank a tool to place a floor underneath money markets, even in a time of abundant reserves. Who would rather lend in any private money markets at some overnight return less than RRP when with the RRP, you'd be undertaking the same secured financing arrangement, except with the central bank now as the cash borrower posting collateral to you. In theory, rates would never go below because why would they? RRP usage has exploded since the middle of March, which, as I've noted recently many times, just so happened to have been the exact time when U.S. Treasury yields on notes and bonds shifted out of reflation. Already something of a direct contradiction. If the conventional theory on RRP holds, then why would an even greater abundance of excess reserves, essentially too much money, coincide directly and consistently with anti-reflation across bond markets. More money, more inflation. More RRP, however, less inflation, less real growth priced into bonds. While there is truth to the common explanation for RRP, 
that's not the only one. Yes, there are some, money market funds in particular, who are having trouble lending excess cash anywhere else. The Fed's RRP provides these with a floor-like minimum opportunity that they've increasingly gravitated towards. As a monetary policy tool, the FOMC could change the rate paid on the RRP to raise or even lower this theoretical rate floor. If, for example, money rates across the board fall and begin to threaten dropping below any set target or boundary, still using the federal funds market, policymakers might vote to increase the RRP rate in order to move the floor upward, influencing other money market rates in the process. This is just what the FOMC did last week. First, the committee voted to increase IOER interest on excess reserves, don't get me started, by 5 basis points to 15 basis points total. Next, officials then voted to raise the RRP from 0 to 5 basis points for transactions beginning yesterday, June 17th. With an actual 5 basis points in return, RRP use exploded by about 50% from the day before, 755.8 billion taken out by 68 different financial counterparties. And the latest reading as of June 28th is 803 billion, which is just off the high of 813 billion. But even this leaves out half or some good part of their reasoning and motivations. Money market funds or other cash pools love the safety and security of repo markets. Unsecured short-term lending, by contrast, largely disappeared around August 9, 2007, and it has remained this way ever afterward. So, it's either find someone in the private marketplace with collateral seeking cash, or go to the Fed where the cash sure isn't needed, but has an overwhelming abundance of otherwise unused collateral just sitting there. What if money market funds begin having trouble finding enough potential borrowers with the right collateral? Then, any migration toward RRP wouldn't strictly be too much money, but instead some degree of systemic not enough collateral. It is here where the increase in the Fed's RRP rate has done us all a huge favor. Theoretically, it isn't just the cash lender that cash lenders would prefer to lend to the RRP at its return than private repo. This should hold for all short-term interbank opportunities. For instance, why would anyone buy a four-week treasury bill, bill yielding, say, three basis points in equivalent yield when they could go to the RRP window and get five? Hypothetically, this wouldn't happen, shouldn't happen. Think about it from the perspective of the, ca of the cash lender facing these alternatives. On the one hand, you buy a T-bill, which is essentially like lending collateralized by the best of the best collateral. On the other hand, you go to the RRP, which is essentially like lending collateralized by the best of the best collateral. Three versus five should be no contest. Yet yesterday, on the raised RRP's first day, four-week, eight-week, and three-month 
T-bill yields all traded below the RRP. We've actually seen this before, and by raising the RRP, the FOMC has made this easier to see. This is the same imbalance as had become commonplace during the last inflation hysteria a few years back during 2017's global synchronized growth. The latter slogan was used frequently to convey the same thing as the Federal Reserve's looming quantitative tightening. For the first time since the 2008 crisis, the economy and financial system had been fully fixed, leaving nothing in the way of full and complete inflationary recovery. No more false dawns. While all that talk was going on at the surface, underneath, Treasury bill yields had defied the RRP consistently. How else can anyone explain such a premium on Treasury bills that they would price at a return less than the RRP? That's really the whole thing in a nutshell. Overpricing specific financial instruments when compared to something that is intended to make such overpricing impossible. There must be some other value or valuable utility, one that has become increasingly more valuable about treasury bills. Again, collateral scarcity. It was obvious back in 2017, having written the following in June of that year, when T-bill yields didn't just drop a few bips below RRP, they truly sunk underneath. <clears throat> To put it bluntly, the Federal Reserve is starting to get the idea that maybe it's not the center of the money market universe and may only be one factor among many others, none of which policymakers seem to understand, but some may be getting closer to. It's one thing to write about it in terms of basis swaps of one kind or another, even the general collateral repo rate that for almost the whole last 10 years has been out of whack. But to find it in the four-week treasury bill, now three-month too, and to such a huge degree, is a direct and negative commentary on the RRP and thereby the idea of rate hikes. What is actually taking place in bill markets are these other dollar dimensions, the distinct liquidity preferences that remain no matter which way the Fed goes, proving the greater independence of money from policy. In the specific case of T-bills, we can easily surmise collateral. Not merely a problem for secured money markets or money markets beyond those. A trivial quirk unimportant to the wider condition in picture? Mm -mm. Rather, this was a another key indication that the system remained vulnerable to even small-ish shocks, which, over time, accumulated more than enough probability that an inflationary recovery would have been almost impossible. Before ever getting off the ground, the monetary system would experience another wave of insufficiencies thwarting the whole thing. False dawn was always the base case with these. This was, by the way, the position of the rest of the treasury market too, the yield curve flattened out even as nominal rates rose, 
forced up by the Fed's confidence leading to rate hikes at the short end, which was the market agreeing how inflation had no chance. With collateral scarcity perfectly apparent during the best times in 2017, something would surely happen deep in the bowels of the system collateral-wise before it truly ever got off the ground. And that explains 2018, especially after May 29th. And here we are all over again. The Fed is moving its dots hawkishly, believing downside risks have diminished. And while true of the pandemic, not true of collateral. Increasing the RP but leaving various T-bill tenors below, Powell has further exposed the naked truth of this same weakness that dates all the way back to Lehman or Bear and just before. It's never been dealt with and the all-too-high probabilities of collateral scarcity. This is simply beyond the Federal Reserve's monetary policy scope because the Federal Reserve is not actually a central bank. Moneyless monetary policy instead requires very much like in 2017-18 or 2013-14, pretending nothing bad can happen because QE or something, abundant reserves. Recall too how everything changed in markets after May 29th, 2018, in exactly the same way as what had followed after October 15th, 2014. Mainstream expectations for inflation and recovery, and the dots in the former moving more and more in that direction, only each time the world coming up very short of those goals. Global monetary tightness, falling yields, decelerating growth in CPIs, etc. Those weren't just the likeliest outcomes they were made inevitable. With the same symptoms already visible, now even more visible in the wake of the RRP increase, why would this time end up differently? Thus, the anti-reflation of the treasury market, spoiler, not just treasuries, global bond yields have been declining for nearly four months, regardless of inflation estimates in whatever consumer or producer price index. The more the participants go to the RRP, the more anti-reflation, because it's about the money no one knows they should know. Because of this, here we are, all over again. The dots are on the move. But so is a lot of other things that have time and again spoiled it for the dots. Well, I hope you enjoyed that reading. I really enjoyed it. I've done three in a row now, and I thought this one was the best one. We'll see what you guys think. At the beginning of the reading, I was struck by the lack of systemic rules-based monetary policy. It's like these dots are supposed to convey some sort of quantitative reasoning. You know, I was listening to uh, Mr. George Gammon's podcast recently with Tony Greer, and they were talking about how the most successful traders, like Tony, like blackjack players, have a system. They have rules. 
I myself, for example, have the same thing. Jeff and I record the show every Friday morning. And sometimes you guys can notice this. It's done in the Friday morning because that's when I return from my night of playing Baccarat. And I have a system. Be dressed impeccably, groom myself very well, and have a smoking hot dame standing by my left shoulder. That's my system. When we look at markets, who are the most successful traders? People that take emotion out of it. Uh, I'm thinking of Keith McCullough and Hedgeye. I'm thinking of Daniel Want and Prerequisite Capital. Systems, rules. And then we get to the Federal Reserve. No, they don't have any rules. They don't have any systems. Why? Because they're so well educated and they shouldn't be constrained by rules that would imply that they may be emotionally or politically overwrought, influenced, misguided. And yet that's what we've seen in all of these recent uh, uh, advances in behavioral finance is that humans are poorly suited, poorly designed for these markets. They sell low and buy high, but not our Federal Reserve, I suppose, right? No, they don't need that because they went to Princeton and Oxford, which is fine, good, but no, they don't have the humility. They don't have the humility. What we need to do is put some people that used to be in markets into the Federal Reserve and central banks where part and parcel with not only market experience would come humility of knowing that you're going to get your rear sector handed to you. All right, that's enough from me. I got to get ready. I got to work on my preparation for Thursday's Baccarat game. Uh, I'm a little bit in the hole. I got to make up some money.